Ah, <laughs> oh, I guess we've had enough cabin fever to in, encourage us to get out and have fun <laughs> and enjoy each other for a few minutes instead of listening to the TV and watching TV uh, or whatever we do when we're snowbound. Uh, but anyway, it's great to see everybody here. Uh, let's get started with prayer and ask the Lord's guidance. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are faithful to us and um, just thank you for the great blessings that you bestow upon us, even though we don't often see them at the time they come. And I just ask that you open our eyes to see your hand in our lives more clearly and to recognize the blessings when they come, your interventions when they come. And, uh, grow our faith in that recognizing of your hand. And I ask that today that you would speak to our faith, that you would speak to who Christ really was and the amazing revolution that he began uh, so many years ago. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Uh, as I thought about what I wanted to, or what the Lord, you know, wanted to lead, and and I was talking about this morning, it it seemed that it was important that we look at uh, the revolutionary Christ in terms of um, faith. He revolution. He was a revolutionary because of the way he introduced faith and its meaning to the world. When he came, all the, the Jewish world knew was performance. All it knew was doing everything as right as it could do. Um, it knew the Ten Commandments and it knew all the other commandments in Leviticus that came along and uh, in, in the book of Leviticus as we now know it. And, and uh, then all of the other embellishments of the law that the Pharisees brought in hundreds of laws. And they were laden with law, laden with performance, laden with external getting it as right as you could get it because that was the mark of righteousness. <clears throat> but then you had the other rest of the known world. And you had their pursuit uh, philosophically of things. You know, the Greeks were these amazing philosophers. And, uh, and, and Aristotle and, and Plato had their own philosophies of life and, uh, and of God. And you had the Greek mythologies and you had the Roman mythology. Uh, all of it doctrinal or, or uh, philosophical or uh, seeking the meaning of things out there. There must be something out there bigger than, than they. But what they, they specialized in, the entire world specialized in, was just an academic trying to figure these things out. And yes, the Greeks had their mythology and the Romans did. And, and yes, it was a belief in it. Um, but it wasn't what happened with Christ. When Christ came, he cut across that whole philosophical, doctrinal uh, strain of humanity 
uh, and and he introduced a novel concept of faith on a personal basis. Uh, belief here and now, not out there somewhere. You know, the whole context of the time in which he came, uh, you know, you had the, the Sophists and you had the Gnostics and you had uh, Zoroastrianism, which was a Persian belief that, that came into being Zoroaster, uh, lived, um, not quite sure uh, exactly when he lived. It was probably around uh, 150 to 200 BC. And, and he introduced the idea that there might be an afterlife, a true afterlife. Um, and that began to take hold. And, and Cicero uh, began to pick up on that idea. And so you had all of these philosophical views of things that were coming together and uh, you, had, you had people looking for the way to God and, and reaching for him. And then along comes this man who is a carpenter. And he absolutely demolishes all of that. And he says, uh, it is... The work, well, let's, let's turn and read in John 6. What uh, the context of uh, where I was just getting ready to, to, to quote, but I want to read the context of it. Um, John 6, And he's always using, uh, you know, of course, we know this. He always uses what is at hand as an example. And um, uh, this is around the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And, um, and I'm going to actually start back as a lead-in in, in uh, verse uh, 24. The people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, and they... Um, also uh, got on a ship and came to Capernaum, asking for Jesus, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, teacher, uh, why did you come here? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures into everlasting life. He is revolutionizing the external mindset. He is, the mindset of the people is from meal to meal, day to day existence, trying to figure out how, how to live and how to live rightly according to their laws, uh, according to their doctrine, whether it be the mytho mythological doctrine or, or belief system or the Jewish performance law system. And he is saying, he's bringing the focus down to an internal focus. But labor for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him has God the Father sealed. And then they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Notice that question. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? 
Does that sound redundant or what? But that was their view. What can we do that we might work the work of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That is the performance of God among men, that you might believe. A completely radical concept. He is targeting the heart. This is the first time that we see the world being upended with a heart issue. All the rest of the known world at that time and preceding it was this external how to, how to get food to eat physically, how to stay alive, how to survive well as well as you can, how to live as well as you know how to live, how to find God. Where is he out there? Or how to find the gods and how to please the gods, whomever they may be. And here he is saying, the work of God is that you believe. And that you not just believe, as the Jewish people did, in God out there, but that you believe now in the one whom God has sent and who walks among you. And so we have all of these statements from Christ about believing in me. About I am the way. There was a philosophical group that used that phrase during that time um, of the way. And so Christ is coming in and he is taking that and he is co-opting that and bringing it into the reality of heaven on earth that Jesus was now God reaching down to man. First time in human history that we have God actually reaching down to man and, and reaching for man always before all of the other religions and philosophies are man reaching for God. So God has come down, and Christ is revolutionizing the mindset of personal belief, not in God out there, but belief in him. And that is turning the Jewish uh, leadership on its ear. Uh, that is slicing through the laws that they had so carefully crafted and the law of God that they had so carefully preserved and, 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 and uh, cocooned with their own laws to make the system a system that was unbearable for the people. Um, turn to Matthew 23. You know, this is the revolutionary here, uh, getting in the face of uh, the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees. And here again is, is an aspect of him that is so unique. 
I mean, we tend, if we have an adversary, we tend to be all or none. We don't see any, anything good that they do because they don't do any good. <laughs> That's kind of where our mindset is. And Christ, he condemned the Pharisees. He condemned them. Not just complained about them, not just verbally critical. He condemned them to hell. He said, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom. The Pharisaical righteousness had to change. There were some Pharisees who became followers of Christ. But if they did not, their, their um, penchant for the law would keep them from that. And, and, and for putting burdens on people that were heavy to be born. Look here in Matthew 23 what Christ says. He's speaking to the multitude and to his disciples in verse 1, actually now verse 2, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now what does that mean? It, I think it has to do with authority. Mm-hmm. And, 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 yeah, they are lawgivers. That's excellent. Ooh, that's excellent. They sit in Moses' seat as a lawgiver. They set themselves up for I love that. That's an excellent way to see that. And, and there is some authority here that he is referencing because Moses was in authority over God-given authority. But he's not, he's not bashing them completely here. He says... They sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that you should do. In other words, when they're, when they're speaking the law of God, rightly so, you do what they tell you to do. Don't rebel against that. Observe it. Do it. But do not... Do the uh, act the way they act. Do not go after their works. For what they say and what I'm paraphrasing here, what they say and what they do are two different things. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous, uh, uh, heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and they lay on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their own fingers. In other words, they put a burden of performance and they put a burden of the law upon these people and they don't enter into it themselves. They say the right things, but they don't do the right things. But he says if they tell you to do something, do it. Do what the law says. Don't discount that. But don't live as they live. For all their works they do to be seen of men. They make, um, he, he goes into uh, cultural things that they did to bring attention to themselves in verse 5. And uh, put themselves in the, in the head of the room, in the head of the table. And um, they make themselves very public. Very, they do things to be seen in public and to be acknowledged in public as as being in Moses' seat, so to speak. Um, you go on down, and he gets into this woe unto the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites. 
for you, uh, you devour, uh, verse 14, the widow's houses. You make a long prayer for a pretense. And he just goes on this whole many verses uh, talking about being externally looking really good, whitewashed sepulchers, but inwardly dark and no life. So here is the revolutionary at, at work here with the established church, and this is why the church, was seek, the church leaders were seeking to kill him, because he went against everything they were teaching, everything they were saying about how you should do and how you should be. They never entered into the burdens they put on the people themselves, but they bound people up. And this revolutionary Christ is saying, no, it is by faith. Paul over in Ephesians 2 says it is by faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what Christ is doing is he is opening up the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom, the endless kingdom of heaven to everyone. Not just to those who knew all the intricacies of the Jewish law that they had helped create. And therefore knew how to work it to where they were righteous according to the law. So it was an elitist uh, establishment at this point. It was an elitist religion at this point because people were so weighted down by it they couldn't live by it. So here is the revolutionary coming in and saying, no, it is by faith. And, and the people today don't understand that. They will call Christianity an elitist Christ, uh, 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 faith or an elitist religion. Because we, we are elite, they say, the world out there says, because we say there is only one way. Well, all the other ways to God are elitist because they narrow it down. Christ opened it up to everyone who ever lived and made the means by which they could be saved available to everyone who ever lived. Why do I say that? Because everyone who has ever lived believes in something. Faith is available to everyone. There's no restriction. Even the agnostics and the atheists believe in something. They have the capacity to believe. They just don't believe in God. But they believe that they're going to wake up the next morning. They believe that death is coming at some point in their life. They believe a lot of things. They have faith in that if they have a planner and they're planning out next week and next month, they have faith that they're going to be here next week and next month. So, you see, faith laid out heaven as a blanket upon all the earth and said, take. It is here if you only believe. So, rather than being an elitist, restrictive faith, Christianity is available and open to the entire world. And it is open because the one essential ingredient for being saved 
is an ingredient that all people possess. It just depends upon where they want to put their faith. That's, that's the difference. That's their free will choice, where they put their faith. So he comes into this world that had no concept of this kind of faith. Had no concept of believing in not just a God out there somewhere. But then he, he did the really radical thing and he said, believe in me. John 14, turn over there. This is the last night of his life with the disciples. And uh, this is one of the favorite chapters of the entire Bible for me. But he starts out, this is what he wants them to remember. You know, if you knew that this was your last day, you'd be telling your, your children and your family the things that are most important for them to know. So he does. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. <clears throat> believe also in me. That's the revolution. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is so extraordinary. And we are, are, are dulled to it. But this was just mind-boggling and, and, up, and uh, turning their world inside out and upside down for him to be saying this. Where I go, you know, and the way you know, he says in verse 4. Thomas, in verse 5, says unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. See, they still didn't quite have it. And how can we know the way? And here's the statement of revolution. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I am the way. So <clears throat> let's look here in a, in, from a different angle at, um, at this amazing uh, upheaval that Christ brought. He, as a, as a faith revolutionary, it was faith versus the works of his time, of his Jewish heritage. And it's faith versus belief. You think, well, those are the same things. Well, not necessarily. I can believe in a lot of things, but not put my faith in it. The Greeks believed in Olympus and the Romans in their own version. They believed in the gods out there, sort of. Some of them did. I mean, they believed that they existed. But they didn't have faith in them. So he's bringing belief into a personal fellowship. So he says, 
deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is a faith that follows. It's not just a faith that believes, but it's a faith that trusts. Completely different than academic belief, than doctrinal belief. Time and again, he said, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees. Beware of the doctrine, because doctrine will not save you. Doctrine is not the way. I am the way. How radical. For the first time in human history, a human comes and says, I'm the way. I am the way to God. Have faith in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. I am the way. No man comes unto the Father but by me. This, these were words never fathomed before, never understood in any kind of a personal way. He is coming in and he is saying, I am God here on earth. I am God reaching out to man. No longer does man have to reach out and up and out to find God. God has come down to find man, to touch man. So it is faith versus works. It is faith versus this kind of doctrinal belief. It's faith as in personal versus out there impersonal God. It is faith as in follow him. It's not a faith that says, I believe, and this sits there and does nothing, does nothing to follow. He always asked the people who believed to follow him. Why? Because he is the way. If he is the way to eternal life, if he is the way back to God, if he is the way to heaven, It is to our peril that we don't follow him. Because then we get lost again. You know, when uh, he didn't follow his parents, he got separated from his parents, and they came back and found him. Now, he wasn't lost. He knew exactly where he was and why he was. He was doing his father's business. But if we don't follow Christ... You know, we, we get lost. I remember there was a time a long time ago in the 80s where um, I realized, um, I guess it was the 80s, it was the early 90s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, 89 or 90s, somewhere in there. I realized, and I was teaching an ABF class at Lake Point, and I realized one day, it was like a, a light bulb kind of coming on. I thought, you know, I'm not as supple toward the Lord as I used to be. I, I'm, not, I'm not responding to him the way I used to respond so quickly. And, I mean, I'm slower when I know I'm supposed to do something or I'm, you know, bring a discipline to my life. I'm slower to do that. And I thought, why is that? Why am I... And so I, I tracked it back as I asked the Lord to show me. I, we've got vibration problems in this chapel, don't we? <laughs> it's about to drive me crazy, and I know it must be driving you crazy. Uh, and I, uh, I, I, 
I started looking at it and I realized, I started backtracking and asked the Lord to show me. And eventually it became a, a clear to me that, that I was angry with someone. And when the Lord kind of revealed that to me very gently, I thought, well, I have a right to be angry with this person. <laughs> I mean, they, what they are doing uh, is, I have a right to be angry. This is righteous anger, Lord. <laughs> and he said in a very gentle mental sentence, he, he said, in a very subtle mental, mental sentence, he said, if it were righteous anger, will it, would it be dulling you spiritually? If it were righteous anger, would you be less supple toward me? I thought, wow. No. And what had happened is I had sat on some righteous anger for two or three years. I mean, it was not out front. It was just there, and it would get kind of stirred up whenever new things would happen. You know, the field would get plowed again and again and again. And so I just, you know, just. And so I had a right to be angry about all that. Well, at some point, I did have a right to be angry with it. I did. But righteous anger, I learned through that process, probably lasts 10 minutes, maybe two or three days, but probably not longer than that, unless it's an ongoing thing that you have to work through in the grief process. Then that's a different thing. But that's not what mine was. And uh, I realized that sort of I had gotten in here, and I had, in this area, stopped following him. I had in the other areas, but I hadn't here because it was righteous anger, <laughs> in quotes. Righteous anger never ceases your fellowship of the Lord. It never dulls you. And so that's when I began to realize that I had to renovate my thinking. And the thing that was astonishing to me is how long it took me to chisel my way out of that fossilized place in me that the anger had brought. It had hardened a place in my heart. And that's why I wasn't as, you know, the horizontal affects the vertical. <clears throat> and that's why I was not as responsive vertically to the Lord. It's because this anger that had sat too long had <clears throat> hardened and fossilized things. You know, fossils was, were once mud. And then it sits there long enough under enough pressure, for long enough, under enough pressure, it hardens into something you have to chisel away to find the fossil, uh, to find the original. And so what had happened is the anger uh, that I had held that was at first righteous anger, but I let it steep and sit, um, sort of collected a patina around my heart. And um, it took me a year and a half for me to find my way out of that less supple place, that hardness, uh, that desire to really respond to the Lord again across the board. I had had everything but this little pocket. I was responding, but I was realizing that more and more my responses were slower and slower and slower. So when we have these pockets that go beyond their season, we won't notice it for a while, but eventually we will 
realize that somewhere in the journey, I'm not following him like I used to. So Jesus, when he came, went to the heart. And my heart was cordoned off. There was just a little pocket over here that unknowingly I was reserving to myself after a while. And it was all cloaked. I don't think there was any way for me to have seen it for a while. Even in looking back, I, I don't see how, with an ongoing kind of situation it was, how I could have realized during that time in my journey what was going on. I ought to be able to realize that more clearly and quickly today, if that were happening. Um, but when we do those kinds of things in that track, we've stopped following him. He's gone on down, down road. And uh, I see him from a distance. And so finally, uh, after several months of trying to chisel my way out and realizing I, I wasn't able to do it, um, I talked with uh, Sharon Fisher. I said, Sharon, I'm going to have to step down from teaching because I can't, I can't get this squared away. I said, can you take my class? And she tried to, she talked with me. She said, I, wait and see if you can work your way through this. I said, I have been working my way through this for a long time, and I'm not getting very far very fast. And I said, I can't, I can't teach what I teach and uh, be where I am. Those, those are not consistent, and I can't do that. So she took it. And it took me actually another year and a half after that to really get back to my stride. I was astonished. I could not believe. That told me how long that had been building and growing. Um, you know, I like fossils and relics and things like that. And years ago, uh, right after Sam and I married, we were down at one of the old missions in, in Houston, uh, San Antonio. And we were walking in the courtyard area, and I, it had all this uh, limestone uh, rocks and gravel uh, uh, in the courtyard area. And I looked down, and I saw this one interesting kind of round-looking rock, very smooth. And I picked it up, and it was very heavy, and I turned it over, and it was splattered out on um, the underneath side. And I realized it was a lead ball, a, a musket ball. Because it, when it had hit, it splattered out. It was very heavy, but it looked like the rock because of how long it had been there. It, it, had, it had developed patina. It's called patina. Layers of dirt, dirt and dust and, and whatever. And it, it adheres to it, and so it, it um, covered it where it didn't look like a lead ball until you turned it over and you realize that that pattern is consistent with a lead ball, uh, kind of a heated lead ball, hitting something and splatting. I knew enough at that time not to go home and wash it off. Because if you wash the patina off, then you don't know how old the musket ball is. But if you leave the patina on it, people, experts can, can gauge the age of something by the amount of patina that has collected over it. They have a way of knowing, of dating it. 
that period in my life had enough patina on it that it could date my struggle and how long I had actually not been following the Lord in this area. That it took me a total of three years to fully break through from that means that I had been dealing with that a long time in a way that was not following Christ. It was labeling it with righteous anger, and that was not an intentional label. It was just what I understood it to be. But that told me that years ago, when that situation, because this particular situation had lasted for years, um, somewhere years ago, it had stopped being righteous anger, and the patina began to develop. And that it took me that long to get that patina off my heart still blows me away. So Christ is coming here, and he is looking at the patina that is on the, the Pharisees. He is looking at the patina that is on the church leaders, and he is saying, this will not do. I have started a revolution, and it is a revolution of the heart. And it, the heart runs in my revolution on faith, not on works. Not on the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And I will fulfill the law with every dot and tittle. I will dot every I and I will cross every T. I will fulfill the law to its fullness. How did he do that? This is the revolution. The law broken in one place means that the law is broken in all places. Galatians. He came, and, 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 and the consequence of the broken law was death. He came to die in our place because of the law that we had broken. He came to fulfill that law, not to destroy the law. So he was the death sacrifice. We were destined for that. He took our place. He fulfilled the law. He finished it. When he cried on the cross, it is finished. Part of what that meant was he had fulfilled and completed the law. The law of God. That was the old covenant law that the wages of sin is death. That when we break one part of the law, we break all of the law. And the consequence of that is death. And he fulfilled that. So that we could live by faith. And so that all the world could come to God, not by works, not by performance, not by studying hard enough and looking hard enough and thinking hard enough and philosophizing hard enough, but by faith. And he opened that door to heaven to all the world because there's not a person who's ever lived that has not been able to believe in something. It is open and available to us all. But it is a personal faith in him. What a revolution that was at that time. It turned the known world on its ear. Coming from all that we've talked about this morning, he penetrates that mindset with here is God among you. 
Believe not just in him. Believe also in me. And if you believe, follow. And I will give you life because I am the way. How it turned the known world upside down. And Christ as the way and the truth and the life coming by faith. Christ in that fashion is what caused the Jews to crucify him. The, not the citizen Jews, but the church Jews. But that had to happen because it was our sins that had broken the law that he had come to fulfill. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you just peel away the blinders and the veil on our eyes to catch the impact of what Christ did with a gasp. Let it take our breath away. This revolution of faith, which we are so accustomed to and so take for granted. The world was ripped apart by that faith revolution 2,000 years ago so that they could begin to know life, so that they could begin to follow the one who was the way. And thank you that he remains the way for us today. Help us to walk in it. Pray this in the name of Christ. We come to you by faith in Christ. Amen. Have a great week.